0: Welcome to the Payroll Podcast with your host, Nick Day. Find out what it takes to truly
1: discover what it takes to elevate your career within payroll as we meet with the industry leaders who are shaping the industry for tomorrow.
2: Hello, and welcome everyone to May's edition of Payroll Question Time. Today, we're going to be talking about National Insurance July, what about directors, pensions wake up, homeworker latest, employment law updates. And a couple of hot topics for the Q&A as well. Well, Let's jump in then to National Insurance, uh, particularly because it relates to, uh, to July and some of the changes for 6th of July 2022 to make sure attendees are fully ready and prepared. I'm going to start with you, Simon, again, if I may.
3: Yeah, sure. So be aware that at the uh, spring statement, the Chancellor changed national insurance primary threshold. So this only relates to the employee's contribution. And that's for payments due from the 6th of July onwards. So 5th of July, if you pay on the 5th of July, old rules, doesn't matter what the payment relates to. The 6th of July, new rules, doesn't matter when the payment relates to. We've had seen a number of inquiries of people actually voicing that they shouldn't have been paying the health and social care levy for their February and March overtime that was paid in April. I'm sorry, it's point of payment that dictates the national insurance rules not when you did the work. So, it is absolutely correct that it actually pays the 1.25% more. So, they've had this concession, which applies up to the 5th of – well, the new old rates, if I call it that, the rates that came in on the 6th of April continue until the 5th of July. And then from the 6th of July, the primary threshold is increasing, which will reduce the NI liability for most people. For employers, there's no let off. You're still paying the higher amount regardless. But there's an element of oh, your software should all be being readied.
2: With the NI change in July, does it take effect for any payday on or after the 6th of July? Our payroll provider is claiming it takes effect from tax week 16. We run a four-weekly payroll, and our payday is the 1st of July, so it doesn't seem right to me.
3: (laughs) Well, uh, actually, the tax weeks that it starts with commences on the 6th of July. That is the start of that tax week. So it's interesting that the tax month and the tax week coincide. So if your pay date is the 1st of July... It's actually under the old rules. Now, the confusion sometimes comes with the cycle of activity. So, it's not related to a tax week. It's related to the point of payment. And, of course, with fortnightly and lunar payrolls, you're actually going up in twos or fours. But the dictation point is point of payment. So, i probably suggest that the uh, software is not interpreted it correctly. But they have probably tried to make their lives easier. But, no, 6th of July is the date
2: fantastic and you've got a we've got a point here about increasing the uh, primary threshold
3: yes that's right so the primary threshold has increased to 242 pounds a week so primary threshold going up from 190 to 242 if you want to know for monthly what that is it was 823 pounds a month and that's now rising to 1048 pounds a month but for Non-directors. I'll put that point, non-directors. Sure.
2: I can come to, to you, Lou. I know we've got a question here. About, are you up to date? I'm going to try and re-engineer the question and say, what do we need to do to make sure we're ready for this? What do we need to do to make sure we are up to date? And what are the kind of things you're doing with your clients to make sure that they're ready for this change?
0: The first thing at the moment, what we're doing is we, as a payroll bureau, are working with our software provider to make sure that our software is going to be updated and we will have it tested in time for the July payrolls. The second thing we're doing is we're sending out a newsletter to all our clients. Obviously, we had communicated the social and well being levy to our clients. And believe it or not, we actually had some employees coming back to us to say that they didn't want to pay it and to have it removed from their pay slip because they didn't agree to it. So there was actual emails about this that, that we dealt with. So I think what we are going to do with our clients is communicate clearly about the national insurance changes that are due in July to july to help them communicate with their employees because i think it's important that that message gets out there it's obviously a positive point so in times of troubles that we're facing at the moment a piece of good news can only be spread and shared with everybody excellent
2: and a quick question really for myself uh, simon um why was this not done earlier would it have made sense to from my perspective, probably introduced this in line with the new taxi, you
3: know? Yes, exactly. You could say, why wasn't it announced earlier? Now, I'm going to personal opinion here, and so <laughs> don't hold me to anything professionally on it. Politics comes into play at times, and so there was a need to provide good news. And uh, we've covered this a little bit before, there's an amateur of, so why didn't they apply it in April? My take on it is because you wouldn't have felt any benefit if it had been applied in April. So, it's a bit like, putting up the price of an item and then knocking some pence off it so you think you've got a discount. But actually, the price you're paying is the same or similar to the price you were already paying before. So, there was consultation a little bit in uh, an element of confidentiality. But uh, as far as I'm aware, I'll say there was no offer of the change applying from April. It was always going to be later. And so, there is an element of then having to get all the software change aligned because it meant a dual operation for the 2022-23 tax year. The other angle, and the reason why often there is delay, for example, Veterans National Insurance was introduced from April last year, is because HMRC can't ready their systems. (laughs)
2: <laughs> no, I think that's fair. But like all these things, they has a knock-on on pensions. So uh, I'm going to ask you, Andy, what, what about pensions here? How does it, it impact the pension side of things?
4: Well, most pension schemes would use the lower earnings limit if they're going to have a limit above which people start paying pensions. So this, as this is a primary threshold, it shouldn't have any bearing. I think the only slight possibility, mm. this is not just about pensions, but also about any salary sacrifice set up, is if people are part-time perhaps and they're paying above the primary threshold. So they're paying national insurance and and they are actually therefore receiving repaying less national insurance because they've sacrificed some of their pay in exchange for a pension, employer pension contribution. And now the primary threshold's going up by quite a bit, sort of four hundred poundish per month. Then all of a sudden they may find that their pension they're not getting a national insurance relief on it anymore. So they start their net pay will be offset slightly, although they get a big less national insurance to pay, they're also not get as much refund on their salary sacrifice bit. But otherwise, no impact, I would have thought, whatsoever on pensions.
2: Good. I think that probably clears up. I know we've tackled this subject in a, in, a, in our last uh, PQT as well. Of course, if you have any further questions about national insurance changes, put them in the question box. We can ask them a little bit later on in the show. So what about directors? This is something that I'm certainly keen to find out all about. It's probably impacted <coughs> my colleagues and myself as well. So um, from a payroll perspective, what's different about directors, Simon?
3: Okay, you're a director of business, aren't you, Nick? I oh, would double the tax on you. No. Yeah. Uh, the difference on directors, and this may come a little bit on the confusion of the, the other question in relation to when do the changes apply? because in relation to directors, they have two limits that apply, and a director is on an annual threshold. So, there is a primary threshold which applies annually. Uh, Directors can operate national insurance on an alternate method, but in the March or the last payment period they ever have, if the directorship ends early, there's a requirement to then... Recalculate using the annual or prorated annual, depending on when they started, national insurance. So, the rest of us, in effect, if uh, an employee got 12 months of pay in one lump after the 6th of July, they'd enjoy a primary threshold of £12,570. Most of us won't. Of course, we'll get three months on one and nine months on the other. With directors, no matter when they're appointed or when they leave, the primary threshold is based on 11,908. So, it is different. At the moment, they'll all be dealing with £9,568 annual threshold until July. Software may do implement the new change a little earlier, but they don't have to. Uh, 6th of July is the date. Then it will go from 9880 for this year going to 11,908. It's just to make a sort of an equalization so that you're not better off than employees, but it's fixed. So, even if you were appointed as a director after the 6th of July, it would still be based on the 11,908 prorated. Does that help a little bit? That probably sounds very confusing, but directors are different to employees.
2: It does. Funny enough, I've had someone ask, uh, obviously scribbling uh, notes, to say, will you get a copy of the slides after this webinar? Just to reassure, if it's your first time you've joined us, you will get a copy of the slides uh, post-webinar, so you don't need to write everything down. If it's in front of you, that's fine. There will also be a follow-up copy of the audio of this webinar as well on the Power podcast. So If you combine that with the slides, you'll get all the content we've discussed today, along with uh, the recording, I think, is also sent to you of the webinar as well, in a follow-up uh, to this show. So, uh, don't worry if you've missed something there it will you'll, you'll get it in the follow-up notes and there'll be a, a link in there as well that also will ask a question about what you want included in the next show so just to reassure everybody that if you are it's all because he's scribbling, no need to just enjoy the show and uh, we'll follow that up just to follow on then what do we need to do Lou to make sure that we are up to date
0: can I backtrack a wee bit and just highlight yes, something that I, as a, a payroll bureau, would find. Very often our clients would submit input to us and somebody would come in with the title of director and it's about understanding if contractually that actually is a director or is it just a title? Of director That's and very point. often you have to communicate that um, with employers you know do you know what sort of employee you have and that can be very much the first question. The second question obviously is uh, what what do you want to pay as a director if it is a director is it the standard annual earnings or is it the alternative method because what has happened in the past is that an employer picks one and then a few months down the line the director then decides he doesn't like it that way and he wants it another way and it's about understanding the impact it is quite simple although I know what Simon said sounds complicated really it isn't it is quite straightforward if you're that way your mind works. But to me it's about making the right choice and understanding the choice. But if you don't get the foundations, which is which is those two, then it's very hard to build from that.
2: Yeah, really, really good point to me. Thanks, thanks for raising that. So what, what do we what else do we need to do to make sure up to date? You know, and actually just to go back slightly on your point, because you're absolutely right from a recruitment perspective, we see this all the time as well. You know, people are getting new titles all the time, uh, which often will have associate director or director in the title and um, as you say, it's really important that we establish whether or not these individuals are directors, as it relates to the legislation we're discussing here. So, really, really good point. Uh, but going forward, what do we need to do to make sure we're up to date, particularly if there are perhaps new directors uh, involved in this Lou?
0: I think it, it's a matter of, I mean, looking at the agent update that's submitted you know, what does it contain, what information, going back onto the spring statement and seeing if anything does impact any of the directors and understanding their circumstances. And again, it's about the communication and having those conversations with the directors so that they're aware of any of the implications and the changes as well.
2: And what about uh, ceased directors, uh, Simon, anything else you'd like to add?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the challenge is with the uh, because it is an annual method, and the annual method for fNI is to avoid uh, schemes that used to avoid national insurance because, in effect, a director could pay themselves historically, this is a long time ago, their whole earnings in one weekly payroll and uh, not pay any national insurance contributions over the one week upper earnings limit. So this law was kind of brought in. But as Lou's suggesting, this is about office holder type directors, legal directors as opposed to those title director and I guess you could, like, I don't know, say local government have a director of education. They're not a director as far as no. national insurance law is concerned at all because public sector doesn't have directors of businesses in quite that way. Uh, even uh, I imagine with some of the new trusts they're not really the same sort of thing. They're not uh, limited businesses in that same way. So we're talking here about someone who's truly a company director as opposed to a director by title. But equally lots think that when they've ceased directorship and go back to say ordinary employment that things will return to normal and they don't Well, not until the new tax year. So, once you're a director in a tax year, you're treated as a director for the remainder of that tax year until 5th of April, and a lot don't understand it. The other area, because generally operating the annual method or the alternate is the same. It just comes out the same, but when people retire or change NI category letter for some other reason, they then get a shock in March when it's recalculated because it's a treat them as an employee for 11 months and then in the last month, treat them under the annual director calculation and take any difference. And sometimes that can be a bit of a bounce shock for some directors, mostly where they're just paid a constant fees or payment uh, there isn't any change or the difference is pence but for some it can be a bit of a kick.
2: Sure that makes sense and then just, just for clarity again the the point of payments information for people to take away from, a, from the webinar just to make sure they're really clear for directors. Can you just run over that again for me Simon?
3: Yeah sure so the, the new rules relate to payments from the 6th of April to the 5th of April next year. 2023. So, that revised primary threshold will be for the full year. And again, so it's slightly different than employees. Employees, it's the new banding relates to the point of payment. With directors, You may find the old banding used to the fifth, but there is the option to use the new banding or the new primary threshold even before, because it's a mix, on the annual method uh, operation. So, the point of payment doesn't quite work the same for a director as it does an employee, but equally, any payment that's received between the sixth and the fifth April, 6th of April 2022 to 5th of April 2023 will have that new primary threshold of 11,908.
4: I think on the directors, as as you're going through the exercise, maybe you're about to identify some you didn't realise were directors, you know, but the company directors, true company directors under automatic enrolment legislation, the employer has the choice whether or not to automatically enrol or re-enrol company directors so you might think oh actually while we're doing this we we could exercise that choice and when it comes to like re enrollment those directors you can choose to ignore them and not re-enrol them you know anyway just a thought excellent yeah. point
2: now we're going to come over to our resident pensions expert andy nickel who's going to talk to us uh, about pensions and give us all a bit of a pensions wake up so over
4: to you andy Really, the the key thing here, because from the sixth of April, hopefully you all realise that the lower earnings threshold for automatic enrolment didn't change; it remained the same as it was for twenty one, twenty two. But the lower earnings limit for national insurance did increase. If your pension scheme is a pension scheme that says you pay contributions between the lower earnings limit for automatic enrolment up to the upper earnings limit for automatic enrollment, then you, you need to make sure that on the payroll system that calculation is being done, that the system hasn't or that you, ha- you needed to have changed parameters maybe, whatever it is, just make sure that you're not using the low earnings limit as your lower threshold for national insurance is actually the AE lower earnings limit. Because if, if you're using a national insurance low earnings limit as your start point for pension contributions, I mean, it could be that's in the scheme rules and it could be okay But if the contribution rates are the minimum, so like the 5% employee, 3% employer, then you're paying 8% of your earnings between the national insurance lower earnings limit and the upper earnings limit, which at the moment, the upper earnings limit is the same for national insurance and AE, but it doesn't have to be, but it is at the moment. Then the amount that's being paid into the scheme is below the minimum required. That scheme is now non-compliant. And you need to look to change something. I mean, if the contribution rates are much higher. It's fine, but if you're just doing minimums, you've now got a scheme that's actually paying less than a minimum into the pension plan, and you need to have a very urgent chat with a pension provider to find out whether or not there is in the scheme rules. It's the lower earnings limit for National Insurance. Unlikely, possible, and it is just maybe a case of oh no, okay, we need to quickly change the parameters in the payroll system, put the AE lower earnings yeah. limit. In place, recalculate April's contributions on any all the weeks, whatever since beginning of the tax year, and and then make the adjustment in next available pay run to to fix that. Mm. So that's that's key. So please feel free to put anything in the chat if you've got any queries about your scheme rules and about this. Mm. But that, that's the key point on the pensions wake up really.
2: Was it was it um, not? Um, Massively well communicated. Is there a reason people may have missed this, particularly if we've got some future changes to be aware of, Andy?
4: The, the main communication would have been through the payroll providers. Unfortunately, on a personal front, the communication of the lower earnings threshold being kept the same could have been communicated quicker to the payroll providers to get, get that out to the users. But obviously, the payroll system would have had it built in. So if the payroll, So hopefully, even without you knowing it, because of par- how the payroll system is set up, it will calculate the correct contributions automatically because the system knows it uses those thresholds. So it's just a case of you, dear payroll user, going and checking your parameters in the payroll system, make sure if you've got one of these schemes that uses a lower threshold that it is using the right lower threshold.
3: It's confusing for people, Nick, and it was late. So, the announcement by the DWP, or the pension minister, if you want to call it that, was the 6th of February. So, it's quite a tight deadline. And so, the thought process, because I guess you're in the middle of changing the national insurance changing everything else has been tight but I think there is a confusion on terminology and timing. So, the lower earnings threshold has been around since 2011. Uh, The value has sort of mirrored the lower earnings limit which is different but the timing doesn't. So, the national insurance lower earnings limit is point of payment. The lower earnings threshold is start of pay reference period. Now, you can set the pay reference period to be the same as the start of the tax period, but it's not all. So, if I try and illustrate what that means, it means that a payment on the 1st of April, if the pay reference period starts on the 1st of April, would be the old year amounts. A payment from the 6th of April, well, a pay reference period that aligns with the tax period or is after would be on the new. Now, you could say it hasn't changed here, but we note that on quite a substantial number of pension setups, they're not set to follow the lower earnings threshold. They're set to follow the National Insurance lower earnings limit automatically And so, the setting says use the National Insurance Lower Earnings Limit. That has risen. So, there'll now be potentially non-qualifying schemes. They may be qualifying because it depends on contribution rate values, doesn't it, and overall. But there is an element of thinking, what do the scheme rules say? So, if the scheme rules say follow the National Insurance Lower Earnings Limit, uh, you could say you've been a bit obstinate or uh, obtuse about it. But actually, it's never been that way for a qualifying scheme. It's always been the lower earnings threshold for pensions. Yeah. It just happened that the values match. But I'm thinking, Andy, in the future, this value could freeze again or even drop potentially.
4: Yeah, that's what I was thinking yeah, as I know yes. but we can talk about it now, can't we? Really, obviously, the intention yes. at some point is that the lower threshold will go to zero, um, sometime in the mid 2020s. Uh, there's no pensions bill being mentioned um, in the Queen's speech, so and any change like this will be through a pen, an act of Parliament. So it won't be this coming session of Parliament, but sometime 24, 25, 25, 26, that sort of time frame. Potentially, the lower earnings threshold will be zero. And what happens between now and then, as Simon rightly pointed out, is will the to stop it being a big change where all of a sudden employees and employers will start to pay much more because they start paying contributions on all the earnings from zero up to that lower threshold, will the DDP decide to at least keep it frozen or will they reduce, start to reduce it down we will find out. A year by year decision is the DWP's uh, process. That's how it's been written into how they um the legislative space? side of it. What's yeah. this BQT space?
2: Well, we've had a few questions come in, so I'm going to run these. Yeah. One of them is directly to you, Simon, as an advocate and representative of SD Works. Uh, Simon, uh, would SD Works have updated this for your clients already, uh, those on qualifying earnings schemes?
3: If they're following the lower earnings threshold, Yes. If they're following the national insurance lower earnings limit, it's the wrong value to follow. So, it will have followed the national insurance. So, there is an element of reviewing your parameters and ensuring they're correct. Now, the difference in contribution, so the potential underpayment, is 24 pence a week. So, Uh, you're talking uh, about a three-pound difference.
4: It's going to be 8% of, if you're 5 to 3%, difference. 8% of the difference between the lower earnings threshold last year versus this
3: year. Yes. The rules of contribution are set by the pension scheme, not by the law. Yeah. So the obligation here is for the scheme to follow the law, yeah, not the other way around, if that makes sense. So I'll make that please. So if it, if your scheme needed to change you needed to notify that change. The other aspect of thought is if you've been using the national insurance lower earnings limit for the past 10 years, it may be that the first payments in the new year have always been wrong because Mm. the timing of the pay reference period and the application of national insurance is potentially different unless you're following the tax period basis for your PRP, which again is scheme choice.
2: So I've had a, another question or observation here from Mark that says, if your scheme was set up with the payroll provider to use the L-E-T and U-E-T, you would expect the payroll provider to set at the correct rate, I would have thought, i.e. not change the L-E-T as it is separate from the L-E-L.
4: Exactly. agree entirely.
2: Good, good, good. And slightly off off topic, but it kind of relates to the question we had when we were running the polls. I'm going to ask it here because I think it makes sense to do so. It says, it has come up since we decided to do our annual salary review early due to rising living costs. I realise that companies interpret the alabaster differently for employees that receive a salary increase whilst off on maternity. Some calculate the difference in the statutory pay that the employee would have received had they been on the increased salary up to that point. And if the employer provides maternity pay above minimum requirements, offset that statutory difference amount by the OSP already paid, brackets, in effect, not paying anything additional to the employee. Other companies recalculate both occupational and statutory pay up to that point, so the employee does see an additional amount. What is the correct or the preferred method?
3: Well, there may be a bit of employment law question there, but uh, in relation to SP only, if there is a pay rise at any point from the eight weeks before the fifteenth week qualifying point through to the end of the maternity leave, so the end of additional maternity leave, that pay rise applies to the SP payment. I think lots of people get confusion about where the point of the rise is makes a difference. It doesn't. As long as it falls within that range, it applies to the lot. Now, occupational maternity pay is on different rule sets. So, that's contractual position as opposed to statutory payment. So, there's an element of whether that would be seen as uh, some element of maternity discrimination. But the Alabaster case wasn't about OMP. It was about SMP. And uh, it caused the law to be changed changed so what was found is that the UK SMP payment was not in alignment with the European requirements so the court judgment resulted in the government having to change the rules on SMP. I don't know Rachel if you feel comfortable commenting on the occupational side because that's purely contractual.
1: Like you flagged there's that potential for Discrimination. I think in this case we'd have we'd have to look at the maternity policy in place to make a decision. I would be veering towards the second option. Don't know what your view is, Simon. That the increase would apply
3: potentially. So yes, I think uh, that that's where you say the personal opinion goes, uh, subject to the disclaimer at the beginning of the presentation today. But the feeling is that the ruling related to payments during maternity. So, what is this occupational payment? Putting an aside there, uh, Nick, because the occupational maternity triggers the pension rights, even if they didn't receive statutory maternity pay, because uh, the pension rights under Social Security law relate to receiving any pay during maternity. I'd suggest, Andy, I don't know if you've got a comment there.
4: Well, I was was just going to say simply, if if they've got a pay increase and it's At some point during that period, then you need to look to see what that does to the actual pay they would have had had they not been on maternity leave. And that's the pay you're going to use to calculate pension contributions on for the employer. Uh um, sorry sacrifice? I have to bring
2: the question right back round to the uh, the pension section somehow there, which is uh, very, <laughs> very cleverly done. More uh, of an observational question here. This could be down to something as simple as spam filters, or maybe a, a wider problem. So I'm going to ask it just in case you all of you on the panel have found something similar. I've uh, another question coming in here that says, does anyone know why the pension regulator no longer sends out auto re-enrolment reminders? I used to be sent emails all the time from them, but for some reason I no longer receive anything anymore. Is anyone else finding communications are no longer frequent?
4: We do send out reminders. So the I would go and log back in to the system. And see, make sure that your contact details are up to date on the portal so that we know that it is you that is going to get the emails to say re enrollment's coming up. Because we do send out those re enrollment reminders. So so you should be getting them. And if Perfect. you're a peril bureau, you could be getting loads of them. Um of course if
2: an email's not responded to, then their spam filters will highlight it eventually and say no one ever mm. responds to these emails. And therefore, mm. we're going to consider it junk mail. So you may just want to whitelist
4: it as well, which could also be... Yeah, I will. I I don't know what we do with bounce backs. That is an interesting point. So I will flag that back to see if anyone chases. But most of the time, it's what the messages we give out is please go and check to make sure the information you we hold for you in the portal side of things is your correct details. So if you find uh, emails aren't coming and is correct, then please contact the helpline. And explain it, because maybe there's an alternate email address you can use to see if that happens. But, yeah, that's not good. Well, we've had uh,
2: Rachel waiting patiently in the wings. I'm going to come to Rachel for the next part of this uh, webinar. We're going to talk about the homeworker latest, a bit of an update. And you may have seen, I know I certainly did, I think one of my colleagues even shared this on LinkedIn, when we saw the headline news of a 20% pay cut. Being taken by employees who were wanted to work from home, but I wondered if I could take a, a legal view on this and start with Rachel. If you could just bring us up to speed on this uh, on this headline, uh, just give us some context, if you can.
1: The headline was shared widely amongst the legal and HR press, and it was in relation to a uh, London law firm Stevenson Harwood. And at the beginning of May, they introduced a new hybrid working policy and employees were given the right to work from home five, full-time, five days a week. And if they chose this option, they would have a 20% pay cut. However, most employees went for the hybrid option, which is similar to what we were talking about at the beginning of the webinar, whereby two days are spent at home, or a 2-3, or a 3-2, and they'd remain on the same salary it's caused raised eyebrows however it is a new policy and companies that that are considering introducing policies like this really need to think about things carefully you need to understand your workforce and you need to understand the reasons why they may need to work from home 5 days a week for example if you try to introduce a policy whereby there was a pay cut and it was mothers with caring responsibilities, mothers or fathers with caring responsibilities or people with disabilities, for example, then policy is potentially indirect discrimination. My advice is it is going to be difficult now for organisations post-pandemic for people to refuse any kind of flexible working request if there's evidence that during the pandemic, they work perfectly well from home and effectively. And it all links back to this new world of work. And everybody's thinking about staff retention. Everyone's thinking about the difficulties with labour shortages. So this flexible hybrid approach, whatever you you want to call it, it, it's here now. And I mean, I I don't know what the panel's views are on sort of what messages we've seen from the government. I think we've probably all heard about the notices that Jacob Rees-Mogg posted on the doors at Whitehall. And um, I think Boris last week mentioned about people that work from home tend to just open the fridge, eat all the cheese and take coffee breaks all the time. I don't think that is in line with what we're seeing In industry we have to look at this holistically we have to look at what is good for organizations companies but also well-being of staff staff retention all these things and you know this remote working now it's here isn't it for people that have office-based jobs but 20% pay cut it's risky consider your risks before you're going to Bring in a blanket policy like that.
2: i ask a question, uh, Rachel. There's something I've heard yes. fed back to me in the payroll industry in particular, which is that we recruit in HR and payroll. There's been some differences here. I've had a couple of candidates and individuals say to me, you know, what is it? Are you allowed different contractual terms if you work in a different department? So, for example, there's another department in IT and they can all work from home because they're developers, they don't need to be in the office, but we have to be in on a three and two hybrid basis, why are they allowed as a department and we're not? So it's not discriminating. It's discriminatory based on the sector and the, your, your skill, if you like. Um, are they it, allowed to do that?
1: Or? Yeah, yes, they can do that. It's not discrimination. It's not protected characteristic, which sure. sector you work in, which which department you work in. But there's potential for discrimination. So you just have to look at why you're bringing in these contractual differences. That helps.
2: It does. How how are the rest of the panel finding this from a payroll perspective? Returning to work, work locations, onboarding equipment? I know there's been some Mm. tax advantages for people working from home. People can get some allowances and things. How's this really impacted on the the payroll processing side of things? Has it added to your workload or or taken away? I'll start with you, Luke. You've got dealing with a lot of clients that must all work very differently in relation to how they are supporting their employees.
0: We do. I mean, it varies from business to business. And I think whenever the rules changed in April 22, it's whether or not employers understood the impact. Something that we looked at over the last few years is understanding we would have employers who would pay the allowance. But it's getting the message across, has somebody double claimed, you know, has an individual Claimed as well as the employer actually paying, making over, and making that payment. And from April 22, then. This is another message to go on to the newsletter that we'll be sending out over some of the changes in July is just going back over what the Working From Home Alliance is and any impact or change that it would have and understanding your employees. Because the last thing that we want employers to have to face is that we're now heading into June, frightening to say it, but we are. And that maybe they have made that payment, which is only very small, but it still hasn't impact in a time where financially people are saying we can't afford to have any more deductions from our pay or to lose any more from our net pay.
2: Yeah, and How about yourself, Simon, some of the clients you support and things on maybe expenses? I'd like to tell you what would be interested to know. What about um, when you are expensing something through the process? Maybe you need a new desk or your new laptop or something like that. But we've seen the great resignation. We've seen lots of people... Changing employers, employers just expense that that equipment, that information, and the employee's gone. Are, are there some implications on the payroll side
3: there that you've seen? Well, there's changes in taxation law. There were relaxations during the period of COVID for homeworking that have now ended. So, there is an element of looking at the position of what you can do and what you can't do and where the concessions are. So, I think there are an element of employers beware and find out. But people will have equipment. So, whose equipment is it? What happens if they keep it? There are all those sorts of aspects. So, the notifications from HMRC in recent months have been about who's paid for it. Well, they haven't actually. They've been about who's bought it. So, if an employer bought equipment and placed it in a person's home and they keep it, there is potential transfer of asset liability. If the individual bought it and reclaimed it, there were tax concessions for the reclaim. But the HMRC view will be that the uh, item belongs to the employee. So, there isn't a tax implication. And it sometimes just doesn't seem actually too equitable between the different arrangements. So, it's very strange. Plus, with the uh, working at home allowance, there's an element of if – you had to work at home. You were instructed to work at home by the government. Even if the employer didn't require you to work at home, the government did uh, where you could. And you could claim the £6 a week tax relief regardless for the past two years. And now you could say we're in this hybrid situation. The tax position has changed. So, it's an element of who's choosing for you to work at home. So, if the individual is choosing to work at home, uh, that £6 tax relief is not necessarily there they have to be actually required to work at home so there's just subtle differences that have applied since the 6th of April that we just need to be aware of and therefore that then runs into other things because as a home worker if you have to go to um, a location to do some work potentially that's business travel but if you're not really a home worker you're just choosing to work at home Is that business travel or is that just commuting? And so, the taxation position all changes. So, I don't think I'm going to give a definitive answer to the question, Nick, just to highlight the difficulties, because I I think it's an element of, um, well, the expression is generally buyer aware. I think here it's a sort of an employer be aware that actually the taxation position is now different. So, be very careful and look at it. But equally, probably looking towards Rachel, employers could make things clearer maybe in their terms and condition and contractual arrangements
1: yeah and I think that's going back to the point early in the webinar about that you made Nick asking have there been contractual changes I think they're probably to come I think we're in a period of transition working out what works for employers and employees and then we're going to see a raft of changes which will include home working contracts uh hybrid con. Contracts or working from the office contracts. Just one point I was going to pick up on Simon as well is, if you are home working, you'll have extra um,
3: expenses,
1: well, extra expenses, but you'll have to pay your own business insurance as well, which is something that, that probably employers need to consider.
3: Well, yeah, there's all that homeworking yeah. uh, type of a aspect of how do you keep up with GDPR obligations, uh, information security, yes, insurance, piece of equipment landed on your head, who's liable, plus how does your home insurer view?
1: Yeah, you that's to I mean, permissions, that. exactly. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work yeah. for all of us, I'm sure, over the next six to eight yes. months. Yes. I think yeah. something that… There might even might be
3: property covenants as well, might there, Rachel? Do you think people might have that on their types of places they live, whether they
1: yeah, ask ask your mortgage company whether you're allowed to work from home potentially.
2: Another aspect we saw the result poll results over 83% of people moving to a hybrid way of working, whether it's three and two or two and three. Um you mentioned at the start of this webinar, Simon, that you found it exhausting travelling across the Pennines and going back into work. But I know you've you've been a home-based worker for a lot longer than pre-pandemic. for those that are changing now, it may well be better. them to have their contracts changed to home-based rather than office-based and if so they then may be able to reclaim those expenses to the office for those three days as a result rachel you're expecting a lot of contracts to change to you know their their main office of employment to change as a result and are you getting lots of inquiries from employers making those changes or or, or people i'm getting the sense that a lot of these changes are happening to hybrid but actually they're not being reflected yet in existing contracts
1: yeah i agree I, i think it's still a period of waiting Most of the inquiries I've had are, should we keep this individual with their head office at X place for the time being? And the advice is probably yes, until, you know, you've put more formal policies in place, which, you know, they will be needed. They are needed. Um, It's just making sure that those potential discrimination risks have been considered.
2: And also, as you mentioned, the whole working allowance sign with costs going up with energy and everything else, you know, if, you, if you're no longer able to claim that £6 a week, that's over two years that you mentioned before, that's uh, you know, £600 plus that people are, you know, were claiming and maybe can't anymore. And that, that would, have, would go a long way to some of those rising costs. And as you say, lots of things to, to think about here. So we're going to see a lot yep. of changes. Right. Well, let's jump into uh, the death of the employment bill. So we're keeping you busy here, Rachel. I wonder if you could um, kick us off. Yeah,
1: following from Andy mentioning that the uh, pension bill didn't make an appearance in the Queen's Speech this year, either did the much-anticipated employment bill. I think I have put on the slide, remember, 2019, and that was pre-pandemic, pre-war in Europe, pre-cost-of-living crisis. And I think at that point, we were all worrying about Brexit. But in 2019, there was the announcement of the employment bill. And it was overtaken by events and it didn't make an appearance in the 21 Queen's speech. And again, this year, even though it was much anticipated and widely expected it would. Um, that there was very little mention of the employment bill. Huge potential changes that were given in the original employment bill. I'll just go over a few of them. I think you may remember that there was the proposal to make flexible working, back to flexible working again, a default right. And that that was modified slightly for it to become a day one right Ability to request flexible working, so it was amended. Proposals to extend the redundancy protection for pregnant workers and those that returned from maternity and other statutory leave in terms of the suitable alternative employment rights. We didn't see that either, so yeah, the proposal for leave for neonatal care we were hoping that they would um, introduce a period of paid leave for parents that have had babies in uh, neonatal care I think that was the proposal was 12 weeks further there was the proposal for leave for unpaid carers for carers a proposal for up to five days leave per year again no sign the tips Proposal, so tips in the service industry to go to workers, tips in full. And then the right after 26 weeks to request a more predictable contract. So that was the zero hours issue. And also there was a proposal for a single enforcement body, which was supposed to be an agency that enforced implementation of statutory sick pay, holiday pay, and the regulation of umbrella companies. All these things still not in. There were some other expected reforms in terms of sexual harassment and making further obligations on employers in terms of third-party harassment. This was following the, the Me Too movement. Also, the banning of the use of NDAs in harassment potential harassment cases. There has been one announcement. So, it's the use of exclusivity clauses for low-paid workers. So, they've banned their use now, which will mean that low-paid workers basically can now work for more than one employer. So, the use of the exclusivity clauses for one employer has now gone, which is a positive change. In terms of have there been any new laws? An update following my first appearance at PQT, which was the day after the uh, PO.
2: Remember it well.
1: <laughs> the mass redundancy without consultation, 800 staff basically giving their marching orders without any notice. I think um, we heard a lot about that in the press at the time. So following that, there has been the introduction of, it's called the Harbour's Seafarers Remuneration Bill. And this has had some criticism, but basically it's supposed to empower ports to surcharge or refuse access to ferry services that don't pay minimum wage, but There's lots of questions around this bill about how it's going to be enforced and whether it's just ferries within UK waters or international. Finally, then, the modern slavery bill. So there's been some further requirements for organisations with a turnover of 36 million or more. And it's just in terms of their reporting requirements in order to try and prevent modern slavery that was a whistle stop tour of the employment bill and what we at one point hoped may may come <laughs> we're still waiting and is the employment bill bill dead I don't think so. It's still a waiting game. And only last week, um, Boris announced that there are plans to conduct a further review following the Taylor review, which was the basis for all those proposed changes, basically. Now, we've got another review from MP Matt Warman. His review, the remit of his review is to explore how government can best future-proof the labour market assess where skills development is most needed, link up to the levelling up strategy and look at how local economies can ensure access to good quality jobs. All in theory really really positive but given the fact that we haven't seen any of the changes that have already been proposed How long are we going to have to wait, I suppose, before we we do see any real change? And there's been one important employment appeal tribunal decision. So I don't think it's on the slide. But basically, with a lot of the companies that are on this webinar today, you're probably now seeing that your claims, employment tribunal claims, are moving through the tribunal system. There has been a massive backlog and um, we're seeing the pandemic claims now trickling through and this one was important it was an individual who worked for, for a manufacturing organization based in leeds and at the very start of the pandemic he refused to go into work and that was as a result of his child had a health condition. And he said, no, I I don't feel safe. I'm not coming into work. And sent a text message to his employer, which is Leeds laser cutting, to say, I'm not coming back until the restrictions are lifted and it's the end of lockdown. He left it a month. And then he called the employer and said, I'm not coming back to work. So send my P45 which the employer did. A few months later, he raised a claim for automatic unfair dismissal. And he said he didn't feel safe. He felt that there was a threat of danger. It was an automatically unfair dismissal. The tribunal judge didn't uphold his claim. The tribunal judge felt that it wasn't the workplace danger It was just his fear of the pandemic. So the the employer was not to blame. It was not an automatic unfair dismissal, which he didn't agree with. And he appealed the decision and the employment appeal tribunal judge has also agreed with the judge in the tribunal case so it, it's one just to bear in mind especially if you're facing the automatic unfair dismissal cases that we are now seeing quite a fair a few.
2: The hospitality sector has been hit really really hard and particularly the employees that work within that sector so those little changes you know could make a huge huge difference to those. Absolutely. individuals. Absolutely, absolutely. Right well uh, if we have a real opportunity to go through some hot topics and we've got a few to run through today so we're going to jump into uh that, As you may have heard at the start of this webinar, if you're online at that point, uh, Simon Parsons will be attending the CIPD Festival of Work on the 15th and 16th of June. uh, Well, if any of you are attending and you want to sit down on the couch with Simon to ask him all of your uh, payroll questions or just chew the fat about payroll, then there is an opportunity there to do so. Uh, There will be a link sent through with these slides at the end of the show. And if you want to uh, join Simon for the Festival of Work, so do take a look at that. I think he's very excited about going along. And I think there's a few of you probably on this uh, webinar already in attendance. So uh, look out for that. Uh, Secondly, though, um, I wondered, just because Rachel's mentioned it as well, Simon, um, the Matt Warman future of work, um, I wondered if there were any updates that you wanted to bring in uh, that may be impacting from, uh, from a payroll perspective.
3: From the Matt Warmer, uh, well, yeah, yeah, the Prime Minister's announced the review. I think because TUC were quite quick in, and, uh, and other parties quite quick in blaming the government for not going ahead with the employment bill changes this year. And there are other things around, so the holiday pay, uh, single enforcement body, et cetera. Now, there is obviously an intention to go ahead. I was just thinking on the tips side. Of course, that was Theresa May's policy, wasn't it? So, um, maybe that's felt like an inherited law. Maybe I'll get told off for saying that. But it would be good. I, I think the Matt Warman, because the Matthew Taylor review is some years old, there's probably an element of revisit. Does anything need to be changed? Plus that was pre-EU exit, and now we're out of um, the EU uh, Of uh, seeing what happens there. So yes, let's see what happens. The other thing that uh, I noticed today, the agent update came out today uh, from HMRC, and there's one significant thing. Uh, tell HMRC See about new employee just thought I'd add that in is what they're saying is if you don't get b forty five for the start day, don't use it uh, subsequently, which is a change from before, so they're saying if they complete a new start checklist, don't use it apart from the student loan answers, don't use it. So, don't apply prior earnings and apply a tax code. Uh, Wait for HMRC to tell you. So, that's actually a bit of a change of a process that's news. But uh, again, out today, agent update issue 96 published this morning from her majesty's revenue you customs
2: hot news on the payroll question time today you've heard it here first there you go and there was also an announcement earlier this week i know when the chancellor mentioned a new 25 million pound central government task force uh that's gonna where they're going to be enlisting an elite team of experts yes. to crack down on fraudsters who attempt to steal taxpayers cash uh, which should be operational by the summer do you know anything more about that simon you'd like to comment
3: Only a little bit. But yes, they're obviously uh, aware of the people operating schemes and scams to try and avoid payment of tax. So assembling some brains together to go and fight it. That probably even extends to the element of what are they going to do looking at the past two years of data from employers uh, because there's still that threat of actually uh, you see inquiries don't you of people who are saying well for some reason my account shows I have had furlough when I've not received a penny so who's got that money and, uh, and thinking what's going on even with some of those schemes. And uh, so they're still around. There's obviously the change to the agent sign-in as well, so probably changing the subject a little bit. But the R87, have I got that number right? I'm just doing that from memory, has changed for rebate uh, claimant agents. They have to do a full form completion, not doing a lot of this online stuff, uh, because I think the government is spotting businesses' taking opportunity to earn lots of amounts of small money, but actually significant shares of money that actually belongs to individuals, to the taxpayers on operation of these schemes. And the other angle, I guess, is the continued consultation on tax advice market, which may affect payroll professionals. We may not consider ourselves tax advisors on the whole, but uh, trying to increase the policy or procedures coverage of payroll professionals to ensure we're not um, operating schemes that don't work. And I think on the whole, payroll professionals do do that. But there are some organisations out there that appear to be operating in a means to avoid paying tax. So, you're finding employees are being swapped from processor to processor on a regular basis. They may actually be the same people, but the tax and national insurance isn't being paid over, and so that's a concern. It's amazing what uh, technology can do for the good, but equally can do for the bad.
2: There's always an angel and a devil on everyone's shoulder. So our last point here is the alabaster. I'm not quite sure what this relates to. Uh, Simon or Lou, um, there's obviously a hot topic discussion here. I wonder if one of you could uh, bring it to life
3: well we may have discussed this one a little bit earlier in the question which in effect relates to the pay rise question but again because it's just frequently we've talk, we talk about this probably on most of our pqt's and i think it's often it's a principle that people can't believe is true but it is, and that's a pay rise at any point from the eight weeks before the qualifying week, which is four, 15 weeks before the baby's due, to the end of the 52-week maternity leave period. Any rise uh, requires the SMP to be revisited and recalculated. And the significance is the employer bulletin uh, from a couple of months ago, which uh, reiterated, probably for the first time officially, that a rise in national minimum wage rate may invoke the Alabasta requirement. If people don't know who Alabasta was, that's Mrs Alabasta, went to the European courts because a pay rise occurred which she didn't receive because she was on maternity leave and the European court ruled that her maternity pay should reflect the increase even though the increase occurred after the payment was made because the European law requires that to be reviewed. Before that, we had a case called Gillespie, which related to a backdated pay rise, uh, doing the same thing. But this wasn't about a backdated pay rise. This was about a pay rise during that leave period. I don't know if Lou's got some comments there, but um, most payroll professionals want to spit when the word alabaster is mentioned. <laughs>
2: I've got a question actually for Lou. I'm going to come to in just a moment. While we're talking about cases though, I know Rachel talked about the uh, the Leeds laser cutting case. For those that want to look into that in more detail, it's the Rogers yes. v. Leeds laser cutting. For those interested in having a look at that more, if you can do that to find out. Uh, Lou, we've got a question. Yeah, came it's out happening.
3: earlier this week, I think, didn't it? Uh, not only yeah. the
2: last question here. So you may have a slightly early, earlier finish for all of those uh, that have been very kind to join us today on the webinar. Unless you've got more questions, do put them in the chat box. We've still got a few minutes, we can go through those question here is actually to, in relation to dealing with death in service. You know, how do we get the right details for who to pay and the bank details, etc. Is there an expression of wish? What if we haven't got one? Are the beneficiaries the same as the pension trustee? Do we pay annual bonuses um, if it was due the months after the death? Any guidance on how we deal with death in service payments would be appreciated.
0: If we are notified of somebody who's died in service, the first thing we do is put them to check whilst we go and get the details and information that's needed. We I had looked at this recently because a question had come in, to one of our other teams about it. And there is some limited guidance on the government.uk website. So there is about who you actually make the payment to. Some of that um, information or some of the question you asked is it does go back to what an employee's contract is about the payment of bonuses. But to me, in the past, how I've acted is it's gone to the representatives of the person that has died, and that is where it sits until we get the information on who we pass that cheque or who
4: we can make that
0: final payment over to.
2: And there was a pensions piece in there, Andy. It says, uh, are the beneficiaries the same as the pension
4: trustee? The pension side of things will be dealt with by the pension trustees. So, the individual's put an expression of wish, so it could be more than one person, will get pension benefits and that will be dealt with independently. No, from I think from a payroll perspective, it's probate may need to be done. Who is going to get the money? You just need to hold on to it until you know who to pay. And
1: also, on that point, it's the trustees of the death and service scheme. So, they yeah. would have to do the checks first and then it will probably be sent to the death and service scheme and then they will confirm that the monies can be paid so just just on Lou's point in terms of finding out the details from my HR background what what I, I would say is just remember as well that you know you're asking questions sometimes to a manager that has worked with someone for a long 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 time and just remember that people element when you're trying to get detail in terms of who, who the money needs to be paid to you know it, it's a difficult period arms arms yeah. round cup of tea before you ask sort of factual questions.
3: Yeah, there can be some urgency in these things. And so, um, there are some elements along the journey that can be considered. For example, there could be family uh, who now have no money, no access, etc. Absolutely. So, you, you can have a format or a form that people sign as an interim with potential provision of repayment. It's just covering the employer. So, there's an element of quite often if a payment is made to the family because they've got to be fed, and pay the mortgage because ultimately the money may belong to an estate that hasn't actually been defined or settled.
0: There's been one occasion where the payroll team made the payment, but then the bank account was frozen, so it meant yep. that that family didn't, didn't have family. any access to any money at that. So that's it's about on um, to me. Uh, the, the critical point is that we stop that payment till we establish you know, where is the money going? Because it is so, it is a hard time for everybody involved.
2: I'm going to ask one more question. I want to lighten the tone slightly as well as we come away from uh, what, as you say, can be a very difficult uh, subject to talk about. It's the last question for PQT today, and it may be one that leads into a a bigger subject for another day, but Simon raised it. Uh, It's in relation to the updates on P45s. It says this, is anyone else aware of the P6 being sent regularly by HMRC Removing the month one, but not providing cumulative figures. We have some ne- we have some nearly every month which are genuinely wrong and we have to spend ages contacting the employee to contact HMRC, who then don't understand and the employee get a refund and that they are not due. How do I address this as an employer when the HMRC won't speak to me unless it is an individual and has given them their permission and they've given me my permission? Maybe one for next time, if not enough time to answer now. Thanks.
3: We could have a session which covers uh, the interactions with HMRC as a general principle, Nick, at a future right. time. But uh, but uh, I think I can recognize those sorts of things. Sometimes it's quite a black and white response, I, I imagine. I don't know lose view, but uh, as a general principle, we'll act on the instruction of HMRC. However, these are individuals that work for us or our clients, aren't they? So they're impacted by this difficulty. However, we've got to be careful what we get involved with because, as you state, HMRC will not potentially talk with us because it's a taxpayer matter. But it would be good to actually pin some of these down and have HMRC deal with them. But there's an element of sometimes make a decision. But let the HMRC know what you've done. Otherwise, they can do what's called a determination 80 and transfer tax liabilities to the employer. But often, if you've contacted them and said, This is what we've done because we don't agree with this, at least you have a a trail. Now, HMRC may ignore that, but they can't say you didn't tell them. But uh, I think we could do a whole section in a future one on interactions with HMRC and probably get a suggestion of difficult areas perfect
2: well I think it's a really good time to finish and of course next month we have a new guest joining us on the panel which is samantha johnson who's payroll services director at Dane's accountant so we'll be welcoming you out to the panel as well next week please do uh answer the summaries as they come in if there's anything you want us to cover in next month's episode which will be on the 24th of june registrations will be open soon at stworks.co.uk forward slash pqt uh, so have a think about what you'd like us to cover in the next session Uh, And we'll look forward to bringing you the next episode of PQT in a month's time. Just leads me to say a huge thank you to Simon, Andy, Rachel, Lou, uh, as well for joining us on the expert panel. And we look forward to bringing you the next episode of PQT on the 24th of June. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks,
1: Nick. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into the Payroll Podcast with Nick Day of JGA Recruitment. If you need help with a current payroll vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.